starting the recording. Okay, so we are now recording. And I do not like the video quality, but there's nothing that I can do about it. No. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. I'm your host, Jonathan, and today we have Garrett Weiss, a member of the Intelligence Speculation team. Anyway, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. Thank you. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly interesting times that we're currently living through. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> the least, right? Uh, anyway, yeah, so I... Why don't we start with talking a little bit about how it is that you even came to be fascinated by science and philosophy, kind of like your roots. Where did it come from? Obviously, you have a degree in science um, and almost another degree in philosophy, but I'm just curious as to where where it all started. Okay, yeah. So um, it probably mostly stems from my cousins um, who... On my mom's side of the family, I have three cousins, two of them, uh, they're all brothers. Two of them went into physics, uh, one earning a PhD and the other earning a master's, and the other cousin uh, became an MD. So all pretty smart people. Um, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the two physics guys, um, I think growing up and just being around them and uh, performing various experiments um around the yard um kind of piqued my interest in science um, okay and, okay what do you mean I, I need to know i need to know yard experiments so what, the, do you mean by, uh, <laughs> what kind of experiments well the one that always comes to mind when i think about it is uh it's a little bit pyrotechnic um but if you take uh a, like a big brownie mixing bowl and you cut a hole in the bottom and you put your fuse in there um, just fill a small line of gunpowder um, on the bottom, not like filling the bowl, just like a line of it, just covering the base of the bowl. Okay. Put a paper towel down and then fill the rest of the bowl up with the uh, powder coffee creamer that you can get, you know, anywhere. Just the big thing of powder coffee creamer. Okay. You just light that up and it makes a giant fireball. Really? Uh, yeah. The so, the powdered coffee creamer is ignited by the, the explosion from the gunpowder. Yeah, it's highly flammable. Um, and yeah, the gunpowder basically is just in there to send it aloft, and then it just combusts and forms a fireball. So um, that <laughs> sounds amazing. Did that make it? Does it make a huge uh, like a loud a loud noise as well? I don't remember. It's been a long time since we did it. Um, I think it's just sort of a pop. It's okay. just sort of like a poop, like a firework. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing. And then uh, when I was in school, in grade school, we did have like a science club. So I was in that sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And we did uh, model rockets. Um, we did little experiments where you make like a, a little paper airplane that you can put on the end of a straw. And then you get uh, dry ice and you put the dry ice in a vial and you put the straw on top and seal it. Um, and eventually the the pressure buildup from the dry ice, and there's, uh, I think it was water in there too, mm -hmm. creates the pressure and it shoots the, the paper airplane out. Um, so we had like competitions to see who could build a paper airplane that shot the farthest and things like that. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, so, so when I was thinking of 
my major and what I wanted to do in college, uh, science was definitely up there. Uh, the other thing I was thinking about but ended up not doing was psychology. Um, and psychology, I think, is fascinating, but I didn't want to get a degree where most of the job prospects would be like counseling. Um, unless you got a PhD. Unless you got a PhD and went into like yeah. research or whatever, uh, teaching. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to rely on having to get the PhD to sort of avoid um yeah a job like that but anyway uh so i chose uh physics and then my freshman year you take the the placement tests for college so when i did my math placement test i actually placed into college algebra which um college algebra is two steps below calculus so you have college algebra trigonometry and then calculus and as a freshman in physics at least for niu the, the degree plan starts you assuming you're at calculus. Calculus, yeah. So there was a whole year there where I couldn't even take physics classes because I wasn't at the right math level. Um, so I did all of my gen eds, basically. And one of the gen eds I took was contemporary moral debates. And it was sort of broken down into the first half of the semester looking over different theories oh. of ethics. Um, so like divine command theory was the first one, um, utilitarianism, deontology, virtue ethics. Um, and then the second half of the semester was all modern debates. So applying those things to things like abortion or gun control or euthanasia, um, things like that. So that class sort of blew my mind at how much I loved just studying ethics and philosophy mm. in general because i think what piqued my interest in psychology originally was i kind of wanted to know why people act the way they do and i like think be like behavioral almost like behavioral, behavioral psychology behavioral yeah. Psych, yeah and i think philosophy sort of took a different approach instead of it does sort of go into a little bit of how do people behave like why do people do the things they do but I think the other aspect that psychology doesn't really touch on, I don't think, is how should people behave? Um, how should we treat one another and things like that? So that sort of started me down the path of philosophy. And I just sort of ate it up. Every class I enrolled in epistemology, metaphysics, um, yes. I just devoured it and loved it. So I would have loved to, and I would still love to get an advanced degree in um, philosophy, but the financial aspect is, you know, yeah. where do you apply that generally? So, I mean, there are jobs where you can uh, sort of be on like an ethics board, um, and especially with things like self-driving cars. Um, oh yeah, that's super interesting, the trolley problems. and Yep, trolley problems, things like that. So being on an ethics board is one route, but I think the uh, the demand is kind of low because there's yeah. probably not that many people working on that stuff. Yeah. And then uh, the competition, I think, proportionally to how many people do have a philosophy degree, even though not many people were in my program, I think you'd still have sort of a saturation there. But anyway, so plus, I, I don't know if you can get funding in philosophy for graduate school like you can with the sciences. So you would have mm -hmm. would you have to pay for it? Can you get funding? 
You can. Um, okay. It's generally a lot less than the sciences. So I know at NIU, they have they don't have a PhD program, but they do have a master's program. And it's actually one of the only master's programs, I think, at least in the U.S., that does offer funding. Um, okay. I believe it is about 12000 a year. So it's okay. not a lot. Um, but you get that tuition waiver, which is... But the, you I also mean, get the tuition waiver. Yeah, yeah that's um, that's the big thing. Yeah. Which isn't a true tuition waiver <laughs> for people who are tuning. Paid, it's yeah. it's like you get a 75% or an 80% discount per credit hour. It's mm. not a 100% discount. So you're still paying a little bit per credit hour, but it's not the full amount. So you get yeah. a discount. But uh, circling back really quick, uh, what exactly is a trolley problem? Oh, the trolley problem yeah. is a moral problem where you have... So it, it, this is a, a, what's the word, a uh, thought experiment? It's a, a thought experiment. That's it. Yeah. So you have a bunch of people on, well, you have, a, you have a track with a trolley on it. The track diverges. So the trolley could go left or right. On, say, the right track, you have 10 people, and that's where the trolley is headed. So the trolley is already set to hit those 10 people. On the left track, you have one person. So the question is, you could change the lever so that the trolley switches to hit the one person, but should you? And depending on which theory of ethics you want to apply to this, and even within one singular, singular theory, you can uh, come with different solutions. So, for example, the utilitarian, um, generally the sort of a watered-down view of utilitarianism is do the, do the best thing for the most people. So the utilitarian might say, yeah, you, you would switch it to hit the one person because you're saving 10. And so the saving of 10 people over one um, is more important ethically. The uh, Kantian deontologist, who one of the rules on deontology is never use somebody as a means to an end, might say that uh, you cannot use that one person as sort of a reason to save the others because you're just basically sacrificing them. You're using that person as a means or a reason to save the others. Yeah. So a deontologist might argue that you just need to abstain and not do anything. Don't involve yourself. Um, and that's not yeah. true for like all deontologists. I'm just sort of saying that's one thing they might say. Um, so abstaining would be, so abstaining in that scenario would be don't touch the lever because that's just, Otherwise, you would be intervening. Correct. correct. Yeah. And so you would just let the, the, the trolley stay on path and plow the 10 people down because it's not your place to intervene. Right. Okay. Um, so there's there's other rules to deontology. Um, so like only do something if you would will everyone to do the same thing in the same situation. Um, so that's generally... Uh, the way I think it's usually written is act only on that maxim that you would will to be a universal law. So for any given situation, only act if you would want somebody else in the exact same situation to make the same decision that you're about to make. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a, there's a third maxim to deontology. It's not off the top of my head, but those are the two big ones. Never, never use a, a human being as a means to an end and only do things if you would want every person to do it in the same situation. 
I see. Uh, so, and there's other ethics. So there's like virtue ethics, um, which is okay. basically. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, basically it's, you know, um, you have virtues. You define what virtues are, like uh, honesty and um, like patience, things like that. And then you would act in such ways to exemplify those virtues. So you would apply that virtue to whatever situation. But anyway, that's that's basically the trolley problem and some of the some of the given solutions. But yeah, super super interesting. Okay, so in, in my opinion, so I want you to tell me what branch of kind of thinking this would fall under um, phil philosophical camp is that you would approach the problem and you would try to figure out, you know, as much detail. I mean, I don't know how this would happen in real life because, you know, it's just a kind of you have to make this decision in an instant. But it is a thought experiment, right? So how would mm -hmm. you gather as many details about the people as possible? And what I mean by that is, so, for example, you have, you know, what did you say, 10 people versus one person? Right. Okay, so... You know, what are the characteristics of the 10 people versus the one person? You know, is the, you know, is it 10 old people towards the end of life? Um, is it a mixed group? Is it a group of uh, convicts? Are they prisoners or something like that? You know, they're away in prison for life. They didn't get the death penalty or anything like that. But they are uh, all doing life in prison, whereas you have just an average civilian. And then... You know, would you say, okay, well, the average civilian who is a contributing member of society, you know, I would save their life versus the life over 10 yeah. convicts, you know, people yeah. who are serving life in prison. And it's a super interesting thought experiment just because of all the different angles. And then, in my opinion, ethics comes into play to some degree, but uh, I, that's what I'm thinking. And I don't know what camp that would fall under. You know more about that philosophy would, than I do. Yeah, that would probably fall under utilitarianism because- What it? Okay. Yeah, the utilitarians have what's called the utilitarian calculus. So it's not what I defined utilitarianism as earlier isn't quite the, the academic view of utilitarianism. Okay. So utilitarianism is more about, um, so first you have to define what utility is. Um, so some would define it as happiness. Um, some would define it as like pleasure. Um, so I'll, I'll just use like hedonistic determinant or hedonistic um, utilitarianism, which okay. is utilitarianism where you just define the good as giving the most pleasure to the most people. So, so that's what utilitarianism is. But it's also um, for any given situation, the one option, there's only one good outcome. And that is the best outcome for giving the most pleasure to the most people, whether or not you have the enough information to make the right call. So under utilitarianism, you might calculate that all of the people, all of those 10 people are on death's door. Like they might die tomorrow. And the one person on the other track um, is like young and healthy. Um, but if, so you might say because of this, because all those people are going to die tomorrow, that you would kill those 10 people because they're going to die tomorrow regardless. So that's the calculus that you come to conclusion on. But there might be some alternative option that 
don't know, for example, um, or there might be more information, like those 10 people, um, if they were to die today, all of their family members would be so grieved that they have heart attacks, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so now more people are dying that are young and healthy, and you've saved the one guy on the track, right? So, so you made the best decision that you could, given what information you had. But under utilitarianism, the right choice is still the right choice, regardless of what, you, what knowledge you have. So that's generally the confusion that most people have about utilitarianism. Um, and so like one example where people get confused is, um, for example, Avengers, um, the movie where Thanos, Thanos, people like to say Thanos is the ultimate utilitarian and because he wants to eliminate half the universe so that there's more resources so that life can actually flourish. Right. Mm-hmm. So the people who are still alive can have a better life. And his and choice is completely random, too. Right, and it's random. yeah. It's not. It's not. It's not. There's no sort of selection bias or anything like that. It's just right. So some people are like, "Oh yeah, he's the ultimate utilitarian. He's he's killing off. You know, he's doing what he has to do to make sure that the people who are around have a much better life, whatever you define better better to be." But utilitarian can't apply to that because one would say, you know, you have an an immense power gauntlet that can do anything just Mm -hmm. make it so the universe can sustain all these people, right? So there's another option that would have been better. Yes. So so it fails the utilitarian calculus. And he's just a tyrant. (laughs) He's just sort of begrudging and I don't know. There's there's better things he could have done if that was his true motivation to like make lives better, but. Yeah, no. Yeah, that, okay, so I, I guess I would fall into the utilitarian camp then yeah. um, um, for most of those things. Okay, very good. Excellent. Uh, so with the, so I'm also fascinated with psychology. I have read a ton of books on psychology. I find it super interesting. Uh, do, you, do you keep up anymore uh, with psychology? I mean, you said you were, you were big into behavioral psych, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, are there other aspects of psychology that you are interested in, or is it mostly just like behavioral psychology? Probably mostly behavioral, um, yeah. sort of what makes people tick and do the things that they do. But um, experimental psychology also, they kind of fall into the same camp in a lot of ways because you can do experimental psychology within different branches of psychology, and behavioral is just one. But um, I guess the thing. I don't know if I could really put a finger on, you know, what aspect of psychology really draws me in the most in terms of the experimental side. But um, Mindfield on YouTube is amazing. And like every single episode that I watch is just thrilling to me and like mentally stimulating that aspect of like what I like about psychology. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of diverse. So it's it is all experimental. They're doing experiments in each episode, sort of, or like looking at research and whatever. But, um, but it's it's more than just behavioral. So, I keep up with it in that sense. In that I watch Mindfield as soon as it comes out. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, I wouldn't say I like read any books or anything. Okay. Um, That's really interesting, and I know that uh, you turned me onto Mindfield, and I watched a good number of episodes of it before. 
I think it was suddenly unavailable because there was a brief period where they had it available for free. Yeah. Um, and then after the the free period went away, I decided not to pick up a subscription. But I thought it was really, really interesting, uh, particularly uh, one of the aspects of psychology that I really like is when it um, is when they study conformity and like oh, social yeah. behavior, like group behavior, mm-hmm. things of that nature. Uh, group dynamics is super, super interesting to me. And that people, well, as you know, we are social animals. We evolved within groups or um, I believe the biological term for primate groups are troops. Mm-hmm. And so we do whatever we can in order to kind of fit in, or at least there's a strong instinctual drive for us to try to fit in somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember that one episode where in Minefield, they did the experiment on conformity, where you have the one person coming in off the street, everyone else is actors, and then they come that they go through and they ask within the group a series of questions. And like the first four or five, they all make sense, right? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's an abrupt divergence where everyone, all of the actors start answering incorrectly. And then the one person who is not the actor is like, what's going on? Yeah. And then they will uh, they they will be divergent for like one or two answers and then they'll start conforming mm-hmm. and then they'll just start answering incorrectly because everyone else is answering incorrectly. And I think that that really speaks volumes to when you have a new situation like society as a whole, let's say, where something is going wrong and you can you push back, but then it keeps going wrong. And then eventually you just kind of give into it and you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, everyone else is doing it. Right. I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it too. But yeah, I mean, it's just, just super interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the later ones, season three, maybe they uh, did a study on something called moral licensing, which is um, kind of a, it's sort of a mix between philosophy and um, psychology, but basically the idea is, when you do something good, like donate to a charity that basically checks off a box for people, like I've done my good deed for the day, and they feel like they can get away with doing something that might be a equal, like equally opposite unethically. So, ah, you know, you've done your yeah. thing. so if somebody, like maybe they donated to a charity, right? Yeah. And then after that, maybe somebody who's homeless um comes up to him and is like hey can i just get a dollar and they're just like you know no whatever go away um so i think that was sort of the experiment that they did um they uh yeah what they did was they had people come to a a a dirty like beach area Uh and pick up trash um and then after they picked up trash they were allowed to go to this tent and the tent was filled with like snacks and beverages. Um, and they were told, you know, help yourself when you're done. This is just sort of take as you want uh, after you've cleaned up. And then they had somebody come up and was just like, Hey, could I get a dollar for the vending machine over there? I'm really thirsty or hungry or whatever. And so they would see, you know, did the person give them a dollar or did they give them a snack or a beverage off of, the out of the tent or did they just shoo them away and i don't remember what the results were but um 
there was mixed and I don't remember the, the ratios, but you know, you had, they always at least have somebody doing the right thing. I think in each experiment, just so that, um, you know, you, you feel less guilty about, you know, the nature of human conformance, I guess. And <laughs> yeah, right. it's like that, but yeah, it was, it's really interesting, uh, watching those things. So, okay. So that was, what was that morals? I'm sorry, moral licensing, moral licensing. Yeah. That's super interesting. That is really, really interesting. I've actually never heard that term before, but it is something that I have always thought about mm -hmm. was that I, I have felt for a long time and not to pick on religious people, but the people who, uh, were very devout to their particular religion were some of the lowest integrity people <laughs> that I had come across. And I mean, I, when I say like low integrity, I don't, I don't mean like criminals or things like that, but just like, I, I, I judge, everyone judges people and I keep like an integrity index for individuals and it's based off of your actions. And when you're put in certain scenarios, how do you behave? You know, what is it something that, and again, this is subjective. I don't know how to do it objectively because I'm the one, I'm the, I, I'm the one doing the judging, right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's a sliding scale of integrity that I keep for people. And over the years, I feel as though the people that I have encountered, like in business and things of that nature and throughout my life, the ones that were more religious, and this could be selection bias, I have no idea, but, and again, you know, this isn't, this was, this is my own personal study, so I, I could be completely wrong, <laughs> mm. uh, but uh, that they had a lower integrity versus other people that I encountered that weren't really big into religion. And I almost felt as though they were using the religion as a scapegoat to saying, I'm good. I can go every, every Sunday or whatever, you know, I volunteer at my church or I go to church or I go to confession. And because I do these things, that gives me leeway to then go out and do things to people that I would consider to be not, uh, you know, not nice or right. Yeah. The, the entire that, that they, they can go around with and behave with less integrity out in public when they want to, when it benefits them, because they can go to church and confess. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I understand. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, again, if, uh, you know, it's just a hypothesis. I, I don't know if it's ever been tested. It's something that I've looked at. I said when I say looked at, something that I've thought about through throughout the years. Uh, but that's interesting that you bring that up with the, uh, I'm sorry, what was it again? Moral? Moral licensing. Moral licensing. Okay. Yep. That's really, really interesting. I'm curious as to what the control group was. So how does, do they, do they just have people that they just invite random people then in to have free snacks? They didn't actually have them do anything like for a public good, like something good beforehand that made them feel as though that they had done, uh, done good for the day. They must've had some sort of control, yeah. control group I like that. I think what it was, so I'm, I have to remember now, what it was, was they invited people there and the the reason to come out wasn't to clean it was actually to do like a video they were doing a promotional video and when the person arrived um if they were in the control the area was clean they just did the video and then they hung out in the tent so then okay. the the person would come up and ask for a snack or money or whatever 
then the people they were studying, um, when they arrived, the beach was dirty. And the people who were doing the video shoot were like, hey, we have to clean this up. Um, it'll just be a couple minutes. And then they, the people who are going to do the video would go clean. So there was actually two things going on. The first was that the person could choose whether or not they were going to assist in the cleanup um, of the beach. Mm-hmm. And so they could or might not. I think they had one person, at least one that they put in the show, that chose not to assist uh-huh. in cleaning up to get ready for this video thing. Um, everybody else in that group decided to help out. So that was their like good deed because what, what it had to do with was they they had to put the person in a situation of not you're coming to do a job, but you're coming to do a job and here is an opportunity for you to do good voluntarily without any benefit. So that's what checked off the box for the moral licensing was I helped clean the beach, even though I didn't have to do that. Nobody asked me to do it. Um, So then then they would have the person come um, ask for the buck or whatever to those people. Well, they did it for everybody, I think. But um, yeah, so that was sort of how they set it up. If I recall correctly, I'd have to watch it again to be sure. But I think that's about about how they had it. Yeah, again, that's just super interesting. Moral licensing, very, very interesting. Have you ever looked at? Um, so you like behavior psych. Have you ever looked at uh, like consumer psychology or behavioral economics, where it's human behavior when it comes to purchasing, essentially, actually, or how you know how they navigate the marketplace and make decisions on what to buy, and what to avoid, things of that nature. Somewhat. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with um, some of the emotional things. So, like, um, I know a lot of soft drinks will do promotions of, you know, this product will make you feel good or feel happy. And so then you buy it and, you know, the caffeine or whatever in there, um, you know, does sort of make you feel better or feel happier or relieve that headache or whatever. So then you you associate things in that way of, you know, I want to feel good or I want to feel better about my day. I'll go have a Diet Coke or things like that. There's all these like subtle ways that marketing techniques to sort of, when you think of something about yourself, they want you to associate it to a product so that you buy more of that product. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I, I find the, that area of psychology super fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny too, when you were talking about your you know, how you had to essentially take all of your gen eds your freshman year because you weren't at the math requirement that you needed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also, well, I didn't come in as a physics major. I came in as an, actually an engineer and subsequently had found my way, ended up getting a bachelor's degree in geology and then found physics as a graduate student. But I had always been fascinated by physics and that's what I always really, really wanted to do, I think, because I was reading like physics books and things like that in high school. But coming into college, I had chosen engineering because I was told that you can make, you know, you could have a good good life doing that particular major, number one. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, I tested into college algebra. So, like, my math was pretty low. And with the physics, they wanted you to be at, like, the, a minimum Calc 1. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know the physics department. It attracts some of the brightest people, like, across the board. And... The average person in a physics program is coming in at like Calc 2, Calc 3. Some of them are even like Diffy Q. Like it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, 
but I, I took a bunch of math and eventually I was able, I felt confident enough in making the leap um, in graduate school because I was just unhappy doing what I was doing. And, you know, for people that are listening, like if you, even if you, you know, if you want to do physics and you're not great at math in the beginning or you have, you come into college with the low math, it doesn't need to be the end of the story for you from mm -hmm. a physics standpoint. Like you can, you can continue to work, uh, work towards it if that's yeah. what you really want to do. The doors yeah. aren't closed. Yeah, the math aspect was definitely something I thought a lot about before choosing physics. And having the two cousins that both went through the physics programs at one, uh, they were both at different universities for their undergrad. But, you know, I asked them, like, you know, I don't feel confident in math. Can I still do this? Like, can I make mm -hmm. this happen? And they were just like, you know, yeah, we, you know, we think you're bright, you're smart, you can you can pull through. and. Uh, yeah, so like I struggled a lot, especially um, in the lower maths, algebra and trig. I think I got like C's in maybe in college, and I was like, "There's no way. How am I going to survive calculus? It's supposed to be harder." And yeah, um, <clears throat> I think for me, once I got into calculus, things started making more sense actually than just algebra. I feel like I don't know a lot of the things that you think about in terms of how the world works are easier thought about with things like rates of change and differentials um and algebra is like you use it every day for basic basic things but you never really use the the harder parts of algebra until you apply them through calculus I feel like in general, like I use at work, yeah. I use a lot of algebra, but it's yeah. never, it's never anything more than basic functions. Um, never like logs or any exponential functions, things like that. But when you try to think about how things work uh, physically, then yeah, you start to use the more complex algebra through calculus. But then it's also sort of easier because I don't know, for some reason calculus had rules that you could just follow that were I think more clear cut than than the algebra rules. They made more sense to me. I I agree with you hundred percent. So I I liked math when I was like in elementary school, and then I stopped liking math after that, even though I was pretty good at it. And as a mediocre student in high school. And one of the reasons why math was never that interesting to me is that I looked at it and it's like, how does this apply to anything? I just sit around manipulating symbols and mm -hmm. putting together these geometric proofs. I don't understand any of it and or why it's important, I guess. I don't see the application. And then when I finally got to calculus, I started to see a little bit more of that in Calc 1 because you do the related rates problems in Calc 1. Calc 2, you again, get away from it completely because the entire course is nothing but integration techniques and uh, like series. Se series and sequences and stuff like yeah. that. And that's it. You don't see any application whatsoever. You see a little bit of a little bit of it in Calc 1 with the related rates problems. But then it's really when you get to Calc 3, when you start to see everything pulled together, in my mm -hmm. opinion, you start to get the multivariable calculus and you can see that uh, you, you can see that you can use calculus that it's the most accurate way of calculating areas and volumes and how we, all these different applications kind of fall out of it, in my opinion. So it's like when you yeah. really, really see it. And then differential equations is taking calculus 
uh, certain types of equations that you uh, you encounter, and but it's all applied. So yeah. after you get after you get through calc uh, calc three and you go on to like differential equations, I mean it's a very much in a, all of the applied math fields I'm super interested in because you can actually see how mathematics impacts the real world. Uh, so for example, one of my favorite courses that I ever took uh, was mathematical models along with dynamical systems, and that is just you're you're given projects. It's like four or five projects throughout the course, and you take those, uh, and they're all like essentially like more complicated problems, and you you work through all the mathematics, and how you can use the mathematics to solve these problems and arrive at optimal solutions. They're essentially it's essentially optimization problems. Mm -hmm. This is like my favorite problems, and I love those. These are my favorite problems in physics too, where you you go out into the real world, you figure out how to properly model it, and then you turn the math the mathematical uh, crank, if you will. Uh, run it through the system and you you arrive at optimal solutions. I, I just to me yeah, I, yeah. to me like it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. So anyway, yeah, but no, I, uh, I it sounds like you and I had a very similar path through at least the math route. I mean, I didn't get an undergraduate in physics. That was only in graduate school. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess for anyone like tuning in, you don't. You know, even if you're not spectacular in mathematics, if you really, really want it bad enough, you can, you can still, you can still do it. Yeah, yep. I mean, and I think, you know, regardless of, unless you're a genius, uh, you're, you're going to have to work hard at physics. Physics is just not easy. And, you know, a lot of the sciences, uh, there's various, varying degrees of difficulty. Uh, many people think that physics uh, is the hardest. I would tend to agree with them. It is hard, but if you want it, you'd have to work for it. And the same thing with any other science. Any other sciences? They're not. They're certainly not easy, and you're gonna have to work at it, mm. um, just just like anything else. So that's really interesting, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of difficulty too is person to person. Um, I don't know. So I I would tend to agree with you that there's different. There's definitely majors that are harder than others. So like philosophy, I could breeze through. I almost didn't even have to study at all, just because I I was like a sponge for it because I just loved it that much, and physics because there was so much math and I just hate math or hated math um, it was much harder even though I was still interested in it so you can sort of come at it from different perspectives you know if if you're a math sponge you might find it's easier than a humanity where you're bored out of your mind but that's true anyway. that's true uh, and then there's someone like me who I'm absolutely fascinated by physics, but I think I absorb like five to ten percent of every lecture. <laughs> yeah, and then I, <laughs> I have to go back and I'd have to like solve the problems myself and do it over and over again. My uh, teaching method too. Yeah, you know what? You know what's interesting is that like in the math and and in physics too. I think I'm sure that you encounter this in other sciences as well. In engineering, is that uh, sometimes the Professors are very good at research, but they're not very good teachers. And there's usually strong accents involved too, which are difficult to navigate in the beginning at least. Can Definitely. be. Yeah. Yeah. I think I had to I had to retake one of my math classes just because I had such a hard time understanding the professor. Just because yeah. not, no fault of him. I think he was a good teacher. It was just, you know, his accent was so thick that I couldn't comprehend you know, basic things like, like it took me, I think a couple of weeks to figure out how he said curve. <laughs> okay. Cause it was so accented. Um, but anyway, that's funny. So, uh, I, I'm curious, 
how so I, I know that uh, you found intelligent speculation by me posting in a Facebook uh, NIU physics group. Mm -hmm. But uh, what made you kind of make the jump in the beginning to say, hey, like this is something that I may want to be a part of? Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, when you had put that posting out there, it said something along the lines of, of, you know, you were looking for a writer, somebody with a background in science and philosophy, and um, it was for the website, Intelligent Speculation. I think I went to the website and I kind of checked it out a little bit. And then I was like, wow, this is like a combination of science and philosophy for like public consumption. And that's definitely something that I would be interested in writing about, especially more along the lines of, um, you know, the philosophical implications of, of science and why we should trust science and, you know, how science is structured logically and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I just saw that and I was like, that's a perfect way to blend my two backgrounds together into one thing. Because um, I feel like, outside of you know day to day there's not much application of philosophy other than internally and i feel like studying philosophy especially in college is almost a an internal pursuit it's very much you know how do i change myself or how do i change my beliefs it's not as much externally um affecting things in some sense, even though I feel like it should, you know, people should listen to philosophers generally, um, not all the time, but I think philosophers have a lot of good things to say um, that should be weighed um, in public um, opinions and things like that. But I feel like people generally are very set to a particular path. And if you, if you're not reflecting on it in much of the way that you know philosophy is um to be sort of a a reflection of your own beliefs and altering them to you know gaining the information of what do my beliefs sort of entail what follows from this and altering them accordingly it sort of makes you better at least as an individual i don't know kind of going in circles here but anyway Philosophy, I think, is very internalized. It helped me yeah. um, sort of sort things out, especially in my own life, um, come to terms with different things. Um, and let's see, what was I going to say here? Um, I lost my train of thought, but anyway. <laughs> so you're like, you're, you, you looked at this, uh, the post, and you looked at the website, and you thought that this would be a great, this would be a great spot for you to do some writing. And yeah. yeah, and you have, I mean, the number of articles that you've done are fantastic, particularly in the arena of philosophy of science. They are, they are fantastic. And then okay. your, your most recent article was the 5G one, which is a really important article because so many people are, I mean, <clears throat> every generation of uh, wireless technology, it seems like people are, or maybe technology in general, people are just spooked out by it. You know? Oh, yeah. And, and of course, know, of, of course, I mean, it's important to adhere to the precautionary principle, but at some point when all the evidence is pointing it to being safe and maybe 
some vanishingly small percentage close to you know close to zero that there's injurious effects at some point you have to just say am i being a luddite here or you know or what right. <laughs> well you know 5g infected the bats and then the bats infected the people with coronavirus so that's, that's just a ridiculous joke. yeah yeah <laughs> i've seen that i have oh, seen yeah. people saying that and it's just like that's <laughs> that's not how electromagnetic waves work <laughs> But I mean, it just goes to I mean, the, the the lack of science, the scientific, the scientific illiteracy. So the lack of scientific literacy. Uh, that, I mean, this example illustrates it because people are believing these things, but they're not even scientifically plausible. Mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing. There's nothing plausible. There's no plausible mechanisms that would actually allow something like that to happen. So number one, there's that, and number two like just the anti-science sentiments these days within society. I mean, it's something that's always been around, but particularly with the current Trump administration, they're calling global warming a hoax. Uh, the, cur the, the current pandemic was even a hoax in the beginning. I mean, that's just, yeah, yeah. that's just, it's just insanity to me. Yeah. And I think uh, on this topic, because it's, it's been in the corner of my eye this whole time, I think you have Demon Haunted World in your book pile um behind you there i think i do but, yes yeah. I have a pile, yeah in the pile of books behind me i do have uh sagan's demon haunted world yeah which is all about you know science and community and you know science denialism and things like that which you know in the his book i feel like in the last four years there's a single passage in that book that has been quoted so many times. I see it everywhere. And it's the passage yeah. about, you know, I have a foreboding of a future in America where, you know, we're dependent on this technology that people have no conception of how it works. And, you know, people turn to the media who are just, you know, also sort of scientifically illiterate and sometimes having an agenda and things like that. And so we, you lose sight of, what's real and you become susceptible to things like you know 5g is going to kill you or 5g is you know causing viruses around the globe things like that but it's like you said it's been around this isn't science denialism and science literacy isn't a new thing but in times like these you see it like everywhere and it's just sort of shocking how prevalent it really is. It's sort of like, um, you know, when Charlottesville was going on and, and everybody likes to think that the U.S. has, you know, progressed so far since we've had our races, like our racist roots. But then, you know, all of all of the racists seem like they're they've got a free pass to come out of the woodwork. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is this is the world that we live in. So. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's 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 certainly interesting, and uh, yeah, I, I I don't know what to think about it. I mean, one thing I was that I want to say though is, uh, I think that the internet. So the internet is a wonderful thing, obviously, mm -hmm. right? We're you know, particularly during quarantining when you have to quarantine during a pandemic, you have access to people such as wonderful technologies uh, such as Skype, which we're using right now. But the internet has, and I've obviously said this so many times now, but made access to information so easy. So that's a great thing, but 
as you know, with all the good comes the bad. And a lot of this anti-science sentiment, like these conspiracy theories, they're so easy to propagate. They're just so easy to propagate because all you have to do is have some, some, some person uh, with most likely a malintent looking to, you know, they, they, they produce an article or they make a YouTube video and then they just send it out. Mm-hmm. And it's there for the world to see and to consume. And then all of a sudden people are like, yeah, that makes sense. And this hits all the right buttons for me. And I'm just going to spread it out for the world to see. And uh, I know with particular social media platforms, I'm talking about like Facebook in particular, that got caught a real ribbing from Congress because of what happened in 2016 elections with the, the fake news and everything. They are now combating it by putting in the fact checkers and things like that. But I, you yeah. know, to some, that only helps to some degree. I mean, that's not going to... That that's not gonna, you know, fix the problem completely. Yeah, and on that, um, this morning, um, somebody on my Facebook shared an article from, I don't even know where, but the article's title was something along the lines of proof that the uh, basically the social distancing do, uh, does nothing and didn't help in any way. And so I, I, well, I went into the article because I was curious what it was going to provide in terms of evidence. And I didn't read the whole thing because I read a bu- like a couple paragraphs and I was just like, obviously this is somebody with an agenda. They don't have anything. They're just like making these claims. But I went and I flagged it as fake news on Facebook. And then I left a comment on there saying it was false. Um, and the person was like, well, it could be, but you know what? I'm sharing it anyway. And I was just like, <laughs> why? Why would you share something that you don't even know is true yeah. just to share it? I just, I don't understand it, but. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either, but I mean, people love attention. So maybe why, that's maybe why that individual was sharing it. You know, another, another thing that I really, really can't stand either that is definitely I've seen more of it since uh, 2016, is that when I've engaged in, I love, I've recently over the past four years grown affinity for politics and political discourse and just come to realize how important it is. And one of the reasons for that is uh, I think it's so important to have conversations. You know, people say that around dinner tables, you can't talk about religion or politics, which is oftentimes true because people get so heated like they get all worked up inside, like, like they're like being physically attacked, that yep. it's oftentimes not constructive. Uh, but I, I think that's a, a real failing of the education system and teaching people how to kind of work through those emotions and that being wrong is okay and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But anyway, what I wanted to say is uh, interacting with people on social media, particularly Facebook, because I think it's really good for having debates in general with individuals or opening up discourses. Uh, one thing I can't stand is uh, people saying, well, we're, let's agree to disagree, or that's just your opinion, or that's just my opinion, so let's agree to disagree. Yeah. And I can't stand that because it's like, no. And, Often, I mean, sometimes it is just opinion, right? But often, but what I'm talking about is when I'm entering into these conversations in politics is 
we are talking about facts. We cannot, yeah. you, you shouldn't, facts are not opinion. I think people conflate facts with opinion quite often, particularly mm -hmm. when it suits their interest to do so. So that way they can easily dismiss it as an opinion saying, oh, well, let's just agree to disagree. It's just your opinion. It's like, no, it's not my opinion. I'm giving you facts and you are choosing not to acknowledge the facts. Therefore, you are just dismissing facts because it doesn't, you just, it doesn't agree with the narrative that you're telling yourself or the right. narrative that, you know, this person over here is saying that you really, really want to believe. So therefore, you're just going to concoct some sort of straw man so that way you can dismiss it. And it's just infuriating. I don't know yeah. if you've ever observed anything like that. I mean, yes. it sounds very similar to what happened with, well, I'm just going to leave it up there anyways, right? So right. I'm telling this person that what they are sharing is blatantly false. Like, oh, well, I don't care. <laughs> so I'm just going to yeah. leave it here. I mean, it's similar. Right. It's, not exa it's not exactly analogous, but. Yeah. And I found that, especially when I get in like real debates on Facebook, um, generally not, I generally don't debate. Well, I do debate political things, but so um, I guess in general, I try not to debate to convince the other person that I'm right. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I usually, when I make my comments, what I think to myself is I'm not commenting for the other person's benefit. I'm commenting for somebody else who might read through these comments as a third party, just like a spectator, and might be trying to piece things together. So it's it kind of takes the stress off me of of like, well, I need to convince this person that I'm right. And then it's just sort of like, I'm going to post all of the information I have on this. And whether you accept it or not, I'm not even going to care because you're not my target audience anymore. Now it's now it's whoever's going to come along and see this. That's yeah. not my target audience. And they that person doesn't have a face. So that's just somebody that I'm putting it out for. I don't have to worry about any sort of you know, emotional investment in that person because I don't know who it's going to be or who they are. They, nobody might even see it. Who knows? But it's sort of an ambiguous thing that I'm now targeting. Um, but it sort of, it helps me sort of keep, keep my emotions in line, especially when I get in heated debates, but. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is a great perspective. It's actually a, the way that I look at it myself, that's what I embrace when I ever engage in any sort of uh, debate or discourse on Facebook, is that I am not out to change the other person's mind, uh, particularly people that are fall into the group of what I call like true believers, like people that well, it, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't even matter what you tell them. I mean, they're just going to figure some way of getting out of it, something that they can tell themselves to, you know, reinforce or to preserve their existing belief system. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I mean, it's definitely for the people that are lingering in the background, the fence sitters, the ones who aren't even engaging, but they're reading. Yeah, they're and, I mean, they're engaging, but they're not actively engaging. They're, they're just reading the back and forth and trying to figure out what's going on themselves. Yeah. And, and that's I've, and that's precisely who uh, who those debates are for. And there's good evidence that shows that. Uh, that that actually works, that it's worth debating like science deniers, it's worth debating uh, people 
um, who who don't believe in facts or who who have the facts wrong, it's worth engaging with them, um, just so that the people who are outside, like it's not just the bubble between you two, but it's everyone else who has access to that particular conversation. It's for them. That that's who um, that that's yeah. who it's going to be for. So it's, anyway. Yeah, and I have had success myself with that. Um, just for example, I was in a debate and uh, well, it wasn't really a debate. So the person gave a very inflammatory view on um, one topic and the justification he gave for being right was, um, well, I have a degree in this topic and so I think I know more about it than you do. And that was the argument. And I was like, well, appeal to authority, <laughs> an appeal to authority. Like I could send you what I wrote about it, but it, this person I've gotten in debates with before and it's, it's just not worth it. But anyway, I, I sort of commented back in response. I was like, that's a nice appeal to authority. Um, here's, uh, and I, I didn't even say he was wrong because I think his conclusion that he was making was actually true. But I yeah. said, um, you know, that's an appeal to authority. And I think the better, there's, there's a better question at play here that we should be asking so for context it was it was a debate over abortion and somebody had commented that um an embryo is not alive which is scientifically false it is alive but the question is and what i commented was what what are our attributes you know what do we value so what's the difference between a human and you know a pig right because we we feel like we can eat pigs, and that's fine. Um, pigs have, I think, a higher or equivalent intelligence to a human baby that's, you know, a born baby. So we feel that we can eat a pig. Um, and then um, I can't remember exactly how I went into this, but I was like, obviously, the, the way we give value to things is not whether or not it has a heartbeat or whether it's alive it's based on certain values that we we value so i think for humans you know we value intelligence for one because we think humans are the most intelligent species consciousness, um and, i would say yeah consciousness. consciousness yep consciousness um and you know i probably dna you know having genetically identical dna that's you know human dna that's like a lot of people would argue it's you know it's human therefore it's got value right so that's one but anyway that was my point was you know the better question's not whether it's alive or not the better question is at what point do we give a life value because i could scratch my arm and i've killed you know skin cells but you know who cares right it's just skin cells those are living things and they grow back um so at what point does you know, do we say each sperm cell has human value? Do we say each each egg? Do we say, you know, at the moment of conception when it's when it's merged into human DNA or whatever? And why? Why why does being human have a specific value? And now I'm not saying, you know, we should treat human babies like we treat pigs. And I put that in my comment. You know, I'm not saying yeah. we should treat babies like pigs. What I'm asking is why do we not treat pigs like babies, right? Yeah. There's a difference. There's a big difference. Yeah, there's there. a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, yeah. really important distinction. 
Yes. And so I commented that I was like, because I know somebody's gearing up for that straw man. I just want to make that clear. I'm not <laughs> saying we should make, bring everybody down to the same level. I'm saying, why don't we bring people up to the same level of value? But anyway, so that was that was what I had commented. And, um, you know, a, after a long time, the first person commented saying it was a joke based off of some video and I was overreacting. Anyway, neither here nor there. But there was a third party person who came along who, you know, has an opposing view that I have, but we ended up having, you know, a very long discussion on on that thread and then moving it to Facebook messaging just to continue. And we've talked about um, a whole bunch of things. We've talked about like ethics in general. Um, mm -hmm. We've talked about like free will. We've talked about religion because um, ultimately it was sort of, you know, the ethics of religion versus you know, secular ethics. And that was where we were like sort of butting heads and he was trying to figure out sort of the thing that a lot of people ask is if you're if you're secular, how can you be moral? You know, without a God looking over you, how can you make good decisions? And what what incentive do you have to be a good person? So so we we had that. that that's, a, that's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't think that you need to be religious in order to have moral and virtues. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> no. And I think so it, it's useful for me to have those conversations because like currently I'm reading a book um, titled How to Be an Epicurean and I also don't believe in free will. So there's, and I would say I'm an Epicurean, right? So I, I do like Epicureanism. Which uh, is? Which is, it's a system. So it, you can't really boil it down to one thing. Although a lot of people would like to boil it down to the misconception that it's the pursuit of pleasure at all costs. And that is like the furthest thing from the truth. Um, it, the Epicurean does value pleasure um, and we want to avoid pain and suffering. Um, if you read a lot of Epicurean literature, they'll use pain. And I don't like that word because a lot of people can get pleasure out of pain. Um, and that could be a touchy subject, but like the BDSM community, right? So, so yeah. Yes. Get pleasure out of pain. So what I think of it in terms of is, is mental states. So a, a pleasure mental state versus a, a suffering mental state. So you can, people are sort of intuitively familiar with, you know, bodily pleasure as something you feel. Um, so like, I don't know, if you're somebody who likes back rubs, right, you might feel bodily pleasure from a back rub. That's a sensation. Um, or um, consider like pressure points, right? So if you, so I did, I did martial arts for like a, a number of years and we talked about pressure points a little bit. Um, if you sort of massage a pressure point, it feels good, right? But if you put sort of forceful pressure on a pressure point, it can be very uncomfortable. And so the same thing to different people or in different circumstances can can produce pleasure states or suffering states. Um, and um, so what I mean is like, it is sort of whether you accept it as a positive stimulus or a negative stimulus. So let's put mm -hmm. it that way. Um, because this, the same stimulus can have different interpretations to different people and even to the individual, depending on circumstance. And uh, so I like to use suffering because it's it's different from pain um, and it's more of an internalized thing and how you receive a stimulus. 
Um, so the Epicurean values pleasure, wants to avoid suffering, and basically the teaching is live a life of prudence, right? So um, pleasure breaks down into a couple different things. There's you know physical pleasure, mental pleasure, and the Epicurean really props up mental pleasure because generally the physical pleasures only last for brief moments of time where mental pleasures are more prolonged so like education can be a mental pleasure when you're like when i'm watching minefield i'm educating myself and i love it and i feel this mental pleasure of being stimulated in my mind and and then i have that information you know that information doesn't really go away you can forget it but it takes some time generally um and so you sort of retain that pleasure for a longer duration um, and the other thing is the Epicureans recognize that you can't pursue pleasure just outright. You can't just like everything I do, I want it to be pleasurable because that can lead to suffering in the long run. So like going to the dentist, right? I hate going to the dentist. I don't like it. Some people, some people enjoy it. I don't understand how they do, but you know, for me, that's a small suffering, right? But I do it every six months because it prevents additional suffering in the future. You know, I don't want to lose my teeth. I don't want, you know, bad gums can lead to heart conditions, things like that. So it's it's a small suffering that you endure to make sure that your quality of life is better in the long run. So that's sort of what prudence is. And the Epicureans would say that you basically want to, in a way, be stoic or, um, a, a, oh my gosh, I can't say it, ascetic, which is that you minimize your desires and um so basically the epicurean would say you know make desire things that bring you pleasure that are relatively easy to achieve because if you desire things desire is a type of mental suffering because you're not fulfilled you have something you want and don't have so in some sense it's a type of unfulfilled suffering and they would say make your desires achievable so that you don't suffer by having the desire and um, you can bring yourself pleasure easier. And the reason is, you know, if I desire, if I, if the one thing I want out of life is a Lamborghini, I'm, you know, low middle class. I'm probably never going to have that. <laughs> I'm never going to fulfill that desire. So it's just something that's there. It's unnecessary. I should remove it. And I should desire things that are at least possible for me to achieve, right? Um, so there's like a, a pleasure limiting is something that the Epicureans would say. They would say, you know, if you can limit your desires to things that are super easy to achieve, then you would never suffer. Or at least you would always have those access to those pleasures. Um, but anyway, that's really, gone. Yeah, that's, yeah. Far, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it was... It was, it was it was it's a rather large digression, but it's okay. So you were yeah. you were doing that because it was linked into this conversation you were having on Facebook, or where where did you have this conversation? It was on Facebook. Yeah, it we was had on moved Facebook. From a Facebook yeah. post onto just Facebook private messaging, but yeah. Anyway, so I'm I'm in the process of reading this book on Epicureanism and reconciling um, their ethics with my lack of a belief in free will. So that that's you know when you have studied yourself even not necessarily studied philosophy, but when you've studied yourself and you have these conflicting things, you recognize, you know, like I, I really like the ethics of the Epicureans. How does that fit into a framework that I believe? Can it fit? 
how do I reconcile that? Do I need to remove a belief to make it work? Whatever. Um, so as we were discussing sort of, you know, how people are secular, how people that are secular can also be moral, you know, I have that in the back of my mind of like, you know, how does morality work without free will? And also, you know, throwing in some of the Epicureanism that I'd been reading. And I, at one point I told him, I was like, you know, that I might sound like I'm flip-flopping here a little bit. And that's kind of because I am, because I'm, I'm currently evaluating my views. So yeah. if it seems like I'm jumping back and forth, that's why. But yeah, so like, you but, find, but there's but that but but that candor from you, that honesty, is to be appreciated. I mean, that is something that everyone really should strive for. You know, the self-evaluation of one's own beliefs and being open to the fact that you may need to correct them. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, you know, as new information comes in, you learn more things about the world. There's really no reason why you shouldn't be changing your internal belief structure, at least, you know, you know, fine-tuning yeah. it here and there. Yeah, not major you- overhauls. <laughs> Yeah. And you can definitely tell, you know, when you're discussing things with people, who are the people that are sort of like that, who will critically evaluate what you're saying. So like the person I've been talking to, I've been like, hey, here's here's a link to the uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on this, and it relates to our discussion. And I'll just leave it to you to go read that. And I'll trust, you know, here's something that I think is relevant, you'll go do that. And, you know, there's people who you just know that you could provide them information and they just don't care. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I definitely know. I mean, I'm one of those people who, yeah, and you can pick up on it immediately uh, based off of how, how, how the conversation is going. But regardless, I always leave links whenever, like whenever I can. And I know that the other person's not going to read them if they're the type of person who is just obstinate and stuck in their worldview. But then again, that's for everyone else to read, too. Right. I mean, this is obviously different when you're in a private message, but I don't know if I'd ever engage in a private message with anyone if they weren't of the variety that we just, like you and I, where we're open to change and we value new information. There's no way I would engage because it would just be futile at that point. And yep. really, if I ever engage with somebody who is stuck in their worldview, a true believer, it's, it's again, not for them, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's super interesting. Yep. So you have, you have found some value from that. But I'm curious, do you, I mean, do you think the, the whole, like, you know, you can't talk about politics, religion? I mean, do you think that that's a detriment to society? Or do you, I- you know, it's kind of a cop-out type of, type of thing? almost yeah a way, of, think, a way of avoiding conflict necessary conflict sometimes. yeah i think that sentiment of don't talk about it is definitely detrimental and if you think about, about it that's sort of why we have freedom of speech right is so that we can talk about these things in public forums and put ideas out there but in private you know within our family units we're like don't do that yeah so you know, even though it's different, right? So, you know, the exercising of free speech in a in a public setting versus, you know, in your home is different things. But the reason we have the freedom of speech is for, you know, the the reason we have it is against why or is against what they're saying of, you know, don't talk about it in private. They're they're opposites. Um, but yeah, I think uh, that is 
like you said, that's sort of a failing of our education system in a way of not preparing people, really just preparing people to be wrong um, and to evaluate yes. their own people. Yes. I mean, do you know anybody? Have you have you been right at every moment in your life? Do you know anybody that's right 100% of the time? No. No, nobody's right 100% of the time. So why, you know, why is it so hard for people to say, you know, I was wrong? But it yeah. is. And for the longest time before, like, I really got into logic uh, and more into philosophy and whatnot, I had a really, really hard time of admitting that I was wrong. And when I would initially get into these discussions where people would clearly show me that I was wrong, because as you know, I used to, I used to embrace um, anti-GMO and anti-vaccine sentiments. Mm -hmm. So when they were pointing out the flaws in my arguments, you know, I would get, I would feel like I would be, be getting physically attacked sometimes. Like, you know, I'd get flushed. The, the heart would begin to race. And then I would just concoct whatever sort of argument that I needed to tell myself to make myself feel better. Like I would go outside of the discussion and look at sources that would confirm my, my position and be like, oh, it's okay, John, you're, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to change. These people are going to tell you that you're right and whatnot. And yeah, I just, I feel as though if, I mean, I, I feel this way about like financial education as well. <laughs> I feel like we don't get any of that in school, but this aspect of it, I think it would be an incredible boon for society if we taught people how to have respectful disagreements and the notion that you are going to be wrong. And as long as you're learning from your mistakes when you're wrong, that it's okay. Mm -hmm. That's completely okay. And you're not going to be right 100% of the time. But, you know, I, I think about like my family unit, because particularly, you know, it's your family telling you that you shouldn't, that's where I learned it at least, don't talk about religion and politics, because it does get heated. And but the reason why it gets heated is because people don't know how to have discussions that when they don't agree with one another, they don't know mm -hmm. how to have reasonable discussions it gets heated particularly when it's face to face you can see people their um you know the the the, the, the hpa axis so that's the hypothalamus pituitary and the adrenals that gets activated because you're challenging people's long-held uh belief systems so you when you challenge it you you're like challenging them the essence of who they are like they're uh, like almost like their soul or whatever it's like yeah you know you're challenging that it's their core beliefs so then they, the HPA axis gets activated, they get all heated, and then all of a sudden once you get, when you get heated, when you get emotional, you're, what happens? Or do you look at the structure of the brain? You know, when, you're, um, when the most primitive parts of you start to get activated out of the, the brainstem. So you have like the brainstem, then you have the cortex and like the neocortex. So all of the higher order thinking comes from the neocortex. And... When you start to get more emotional, that's when the logic, the neocortex, it's like the, the logic and all that, the more reasonable part of you. When you become more emotional in these discussions, that starts to shut down. And then the, the discussions like go off the rails. Like, oh, just yeah. stop it. You know, you know what I'm saying? And people just don't know how to discussions. I've seen it at family parties so many different times. I know in particular, like I got stopped most recently, I was having a conversation with an aunt of, my, aunt of mine who is a diehard Trump supporter. Um, and she came up to me during a family party 
and we were having a conversation one on one. And it was actually very cordial. But the reason why I think it, main, it maintained such a air of cordialness was because I remained very, very calm. Uh, but I kept, you know, laying out the facts. And then she just kept rebutting with, well, you must be listening to CNN or yeah. MSNBC. It's all just fake news. And I'm like, look, look, listen, these are facts. If you don't want to acknowledge the facts, then you've got a serious problem. But eventually she just got up and walked away because she's just going to hold on to the fact that, uh, like I said, Trump supporters, so that Trump is the best thing ever, even though we have a lot of evidence that shows that he's a pathological liar hmm. and that he just kind of says all of these things because they sound good, even though they, they don't reflect reality. Uh, but yeah, I just I just feel like it's such a detriment. It's It's so difficult. Like, I don't understand... Why I can't have a conversation with a family member that I disagree with? Yeah. Why is it? Why is it so hard? Yeah, so anyway, I feel I feel like, you know, learning how to have a conversation, along with, also coupled with the whole financial thing that I mentioned earlier. I think that those are huge gaps in our current education system. Looking back on it, having gone through the public education system myself, I didn't have private; I had public. And looking back on it, I think that. The schools are severely lacking in those aspects. I mean, maybe a little bit more on the science too, the scientific, the science aspect of it. Just learning more about how, not so much just facts, but why it is that science works. Because mm -hmm. I, I just, I mean, school is a lot of fact memorization and then regurgitation, right? So yeah. I, I think that the more injecting more like philosophy and then again the financial education aspect of it. But uh, anyway, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean. If it was an option that I knew I could like get a job doing, I would absolutely love to teach philosophy on a high school level. And I feel like subjectively, like to me, especially ethics, it was sort of like an untangling of of conflicting beliefs that I had going on. Right. So I I grew up religious um, in Protestant First United Methodist Church. And when you have the sort of religious ethics, it's very much, you know, what does the book say? Uh, and it's all, there's there's not a lot of how do you figure out how to make the right decision, it's what does the book say? Um, and so it's sort of different than the more modern ethical theories, which are more like mathematical functions, right? So when you make a, a, a ethical theory today, like utilitarianism, it's all about, you know, here's the situation X, crunch some variables, and it will produce good or bad action for Y, right? So, yeah. so that's what you sort of want in your modern theories. And um, I know when I was in my eth that first ethics course, the professor didn't even call um, divine command theory a theory in the same vein as the rest of them because it's just a list it's just <laughs> yeah. a list of things um from a book so 2000 from, years ago that's been modified like countless times <laughs> yeah and so yeah i mean it's so you always have to just see whether the action is on this list and if it's not well it's like tough cookies you know, yeah. you, you don't know if it's good or bad or not. You know, is it is it okay for me to walk down the sidewalk with an ice cream cone in my pocket? I don't know. It's not in the book. But 
you know. Uh, yeah. And in one state, I, I bring that up just because in, in one state, it's uh, outlawed to walk down the sidewalk with an ice cream cone in a pocket because I believe the reason was that people used to do that and they would put uh, horse feed in that ice cream cone or something like that. And they would like attract horses out of the farmer's um, fields and they would just rob horses that way. So it would look like you're just walking by, but you're actually, you know, pulling a horse behind you because it's, that's what I heard. I don't know if that's <laughs> true. That's just speculation. Yeah. Um, but anyway. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's super interesting. And I definitely think that the tools that, you know, we're always changing. We're always evolving and getting better, learning more as a society. And we should do whatever we can to uh, assimilate the best information that we have possible mm. available to us. And the average person should know how to do this. I mean, not only should we be doing this on a governmental level and on a corporate level, and I think that they do a good job of this, mostly uh, I would say in the marketplace because the marketplace is incentivized to use the latest and greatest in order to maximize profits. So it does a very good job, in my opinion, of pushing the technological envelope and then incorporating these new technologies in order to try to maximize profits and of course you know obviously from a you know is this a bit the best thing to do from a humanity standpoint is a different discussion but what i'm saying is from a tech from an innovation standpoint and new technologies uh, and i also think that the government does a good job of that too given that they are just tasked with running millions of people and whatnot um, obviously the two those two, two things are different from the speeds at which they operate but i do think that they are both incentivized to use the latest and greatest technologies available to them and information. However, I don't know if the average individual is to use, to, and that is to use the best information available to them, or if they even know how to do that uh, properly. So it's all, it's all very interesting. And I am a little bit concerned for our species at the moment, as I'm sure that you are. Uh, just get, yeah, given given the number, the list of problems ahead of us, and I'm not just talking about the current pandemic because I don't I don't know. I mean, it was only a matter of time before there was another pandemic, and you know, looking back on this, we'll have people will have in higher positions countless hours of how we could have handled it better. But novel viruses are unavoidable. But looking to you know whether or not wet markets around the world should be banned uh, in their entirety or limited in the number of species. Um, so that that'll be an interesting conversation as well. But I, you know, I'm talking about the the current economic model, particularly here in the United States, seems to be failing. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't it doesn't maximize human prospering, in my opinion, particularly with the rising rising disparity between the wealthy and the poor. And even I, I see, it just feels like the middle class is going away. Um, and I think and there's plenty of evidence to support this as well. This current pandemic is exacerbating that and making it more apparent that it exists. You know, the fact that here in the United States, we have, we spend the most money. We spend like an incredible amount of money compared to other people on healthcare, yet it's the worst in the first, among first world or industrialized world nations and that we have to deal with uh, the, the rising popularity of authoritarianism, it looks like, which is very frightening uh, because democracy is a very good thing, in my opinion, and I like it. Uh, but people are in first world developed nations are routinely now 
not routinely, completely, but they have voted for authoritarian type figures. And this is just very, very bad, in my opinion. And then, of course, there's global warming. And it's like, mm. I mean, I think out of all of the problems, global warming keeps me up the most at night. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, global warming is going to accelerate or it, it's currently on an exponential trajectory. And yep. when it when it starts to really hit the doubling phases where it's much more noticeable than it is now, and then people finally figure out that we have to do something about it, it's just going to be too late. And, you know, this, the half-life for CO2 is hundreds of years. And yeah, it's just, it's just, just a lot, just a lot to think about. I don't know how you feel. I mean, <laughs> but. Yeah. In some sense, I don't know that, that um, you know, global warming and what will happen when we get to that point keeps me up at night. But I think the problem that keeps me up at night is, you know, that we aren't doing anything about it. So the problem of the scientific illiteracy and the, oh, yeah. um, just the denialism, because, you know, global warming is a problem. But the main problem right now is that we don't have enough people that are taking it seriously to act on it. So in some no, yeah. sense, yeah. that is the problem. No, that uh, is the yeah. That's yeah. I, I I suppose I should have been a little bit more specific, but yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the the problem is the denialism from the yeah. scientific community, and one of the things that I'm hoping that comes out of this uh, pandemic currently is the value of listening to the scientific community. Uh, yeah, so and more. I'm not. I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic yet, <laughs> because you know I've read a lot of things online. Well, not a lot of things. I've read a couple of things online and it's about sort of, you know, how when this is all done, what we're going to be seeing is all and we're already seeing it is the the return to normal. How do we get back to normal? And this idea that, you know, normal was failing. Normal's not what we want to go back to. We want yeah. to get past this. We want to improve. This is like it's like our apocalypse light. We're not at the apocalypse yet, but this is like our our free seven week trial to see how we're going <laughs> to test it out. Yeah. And you know, we're not doing very well. No. Uh, so, so yeah, the, this whole idea of, you know, going back to normal and just brushing it off. I'm, a, I'm sort of scared that in, you know, one or two years, people are just so, sort of going to forget about, you know, the three or four months we all spent locked in our homes and we couldn't sit at a restaurant or something. Yeah. Uh, and it's just going to be back to business as usual. And, you know, that's, I guess that's kind of what keeps me up at night is this, the idea of going back to normal. Yeah, it's, we shouldn't return to normal. You are 100% correct. It's because normal wasn't working. It's going to be a return to a new normal is what people yeah. should say and what we should strive for. And that new normal, it, it absolutely needs to be better than our old normal. Mm -hmm. And whatever metrics we use, you got to make sure that those are really good metrics because that new normal, it's important that it's it's better than the old. Uh, so, and I suppose you know we could digress a little bit into. Are you familiar with the with Fermi's paradox at all? Yeah. Yeah, Fermi's paradox: the fact that we don't see any sort of intelligent, any yeah. yeah, any sort of intelligent life in the Great Funnel, something something of that nature. But anyways, perhaps we should save that for another for another time. Uh, anyway, yeah. Was there anything anything that you want to add? Otherwise, I think I'm going to let you go here. 
No, I think, uh, well, there is one quote. If, I don't know if you want to, like, you, I assume you're going to edit this later on, this uh, video. No, no. No, just going to post it. Okay. Yeah, we're well, just going to, we're just, well, just going to go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, there's one quote that I would like to share. Um, if I can bring it up quickly. Oh, yeah. No, we're not in any rush. And I, I didn't have this pulled up already because I, I had just thought about it while we were talking. And it's sort of relevant to, well, it is, it's relevant to um, the, the mentality we have and the, all the denialism that's going on and the, the science illiteracy. And it's, it's not the, the quote out of Demon Haunted World because um, I feel like I kind of paraphrase that um, mm -hmm. enough. There it is. Okay, so this is a quote from Hannah Arendt, um, and it's out of her book titled The Origins of Totalitarianism. So Hannah Arendt was a political philosopher, um, and she, I believe, lived through World War II. Um, and her, her book, um, The Banality of Evil, is also fascinating because it looks at um, this guy... Um, his last name is Eichmann. I can't remember his first name. Adolf Adolf Eichmann, who was like a general in the Third Reich. And when he was on trial um, for war crimes, um, there was this feeling that, or there wasn't a feeling, he was actually put in like a glass cage when he was on trial um, so that he looked, you know, like an animal. Because that's how people felt, you know, this guy's evil. Yeah. He's, he's just evil because he's evil and he's an animal. So we're going to cage him. And one of the things she said about that was the scary thing wasn't that we recognized he was evil and he was in this, you know, cage and whatever on trial. The scary thing was how similar he w appeared and came off to everybody else. He looked for intent, all intentions and purposes, just like a normal dude who, you know, did atrocities but he he it's unsettling when the person appears like us sort of like what we were saying earlier about conformity right if we're yeah. in a conforming group and somebody in that group starts deviating even though you know we thought we were very similar to this person it's like unsettling um but anyway this this is from her other book the origins of totalitarianism and it's about propaganda um so this is the quote in an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think everything was possible, and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that, under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the, deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. Which I think that's, is 
like almost just speaking right about Donald Trump. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, I would I would say that that's very relevant to what's going on here in the United States uh, currently today. Um, as far as just the behavior and the, um, I'll say it, the cult of people around him. It is mm -hmm. his follow. It, it it is a cult at this point, uh, in my opinion. Just because it's just so delusional. I, I don't know any other word to call it. <laughs> yeah, so. cult of personality, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's it's something. <laughs> yeah, it's something, and it's not good. But anyway, I wanted to, uh, to thank you so much, Garrett, for taking time out of your day to do this. It was it was fun. Uh, yep. Perhaps we'll do it again sometime in the future. And for all of those those of you tuning in, thank you so much for uh, for doing so, and uh, keep an eye out for Garrett's articles in the future. Take care. Thanks. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.